My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Slow Fawn songwriter Sam Cohen, who's known for his work with Apollo Sunshine, Yellow Birds, Danger Mouse, Kevin Morby, and Karen O, creates a glowing meditative space. Drawing from long jam sessions with his collaborators, it pairs dashes of jazz with synthesized new age and touches of pop and minimalism. It's a really fantastic record and one that I have returned to many times over the last couple of months. Sam Cohen is my guest today on Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. Thanks for being here with us. Before we get into the conversation, though, I want to take a moment to remind you that if you dig what we do on Transmissions and you like our conversations about art and culture, you can help us keep creating them by checking out Aquarium Drunkard's Patreon page. Independent outfits are hard to come by these days, and we pride ourselves on spotlighting only the good shit. So if you appreciate the reportage, Patreon is the place to pledge to help us keep creating. Plus, it gets you access to cool stuff, mixtapes, radio-free aquarium drunkard programs, all sorts of cool exclusive bonus stuff, including some more podcast conversations before our season wraps up. We've only got a few more episodes of our 2022 season, but each one of them is a real winner. So without delay, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Sam Cohen. Thanks for being with us here on Transmissions. Sam, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Oh man, it's a it's a pleasure. I I actually love and listen to this podcast, and uh, yeah, I'm psyched to be here. Well, it, it like it always makes me feel really good when people say that. I'll t- you know, weirdly, sometimes it makes me self conscious, and then I I start to doubt that they mean it, uh, which is such a, a bizarre thing for it to trigger. But that is the truth. Um, a true creator, <laughs> you are. I I want to I want to say though, man, Slow Fawn, what a cool record! Holy shit! Thanks, man. Thank you. There's something that you wrote in the, like the bio, the liner notes about it. Um, you said that over the last couple of years, you didn't feel like you had a whole lot to say, you know, lyrically or or statement wise in terms of making big statements. I completely empathize uh it's it's been such a weird couple of years and you, i think you write everything was chaos it didn't need pointing out 
But you also talked about how music has many times served as a source of joy or healing for you. And I wonder if to start off, you could tell me maybe some of the times where in your life, like when you think about it, like have there what have, what have been some some moments where like a song really, truly helped get you through something or inspire the kind of joy that you're talking about there? Um, you know, for, I think the best example I can think of, um, is something that happened kind of recently. It was, um, let's see, it was the beginning, it was January, 2021. Yeah. And like the riot had just happened. Like sure. things were sure. feeling pretty depressing. Um, and I was feeling just like, pretty helpless in the world to like do anything about this like ocean of sorrow and chaos and destruction that was <laughs> everywhere. And, um, I was, uh, like watching a movie with my wife, Sarah, and I was just sort of also flipping through Instagram, which is a terrible thing to be doing. But I pulled up a, a message from this guy, Matt King. And he told me um, in a sort of long message, he recounted um, how he and his younger brother had uh, seen Yellow Birds, my old band. Mm -hmm. um, it's a project I had from like 2010 to 2014. And they uh, had had a night together. There was kind of an age gap. They weren't always close, but like it, it was like, one of the prime hangs of their life. And they like got together in the city, um, New York City, and Yellowbirds was playing at a club. They wandered in and they just loved it and had a great night, bought a record, you know, uh, became fans. I saw them at a couple of other shows. He showed me a picture of us at the chapel in San Francisco and all this stuff. And, and then the message says, fast forward to today. My brother, Matt, is 36. He's dying of cancer. Oh. Um, would you consider uh, like playing some songs on a Zoom call? And then he says, I could pay you for your time. And I just sort of like froze. Just like, yeah. It just sort of like didn't totally jibe with my experience of the world. And this like growing narrative that I'd been having in this very like isolated perspective. Yeah. It like music that I'd made almost a decade earlier um, suddenly mattered so much to this person who yeah. like, you know, I'd, I'd met a couple of quick times, but like didn't know. Um. And so, you know, I wrote him back and was like, I'll absolutely do this. You obviously don't have to pay me. And, you know, two of the Yellowbirds band members actually live up the road. Like, what if we all got together and, yeah, you know, actually yeah. played the songs as a band? Um, so we did that. And it was like, it, it was incredibly emotional and powerful. I mean, we all cried when we hung up that call and just sort of clutched each other to know that we have 
each other and our lives and our health and our children and music as a sort of healing yeah. medicine when we need it and to that we're like the doctors in that sense who can administer that medicine. And um, that that snapped so much back into focus for me prior to making this record about like the real, true, wholesome origins of music and what this is that we musicians are doing. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, first off, that is just, what a beautiful story and what an intense situation. It really is so, we, I think, live in a kind of music ecosystem or a society, unfortunately, that doesn't recognize the depth of what you're talking about there, you know, or doesn't, or doesn't like build systems up that sustain it as well as it should, you know? Um, but there's so much that goes into making music and so much of it, I think, especially when I think back on the conversations we've had on this show, how often people talk about how it can be easy to delude yourself or convince yourself rather that this is all a delusional thing that I should be doing. You know, I mean, it's like, it's always there that temptation to like discount the power of the, the idea, you know, of what music could do. When I was listening to slow fawn, I definitely got the sense that I was listening to somebody who was connected with that idea that music can can be another place too. It can be a a less a less stressful place, you know? Sometimes it can be a more stressful place. Sometimes you listen to records that freak you out, you know, and that's a good thing too. But that music could be another place. Like there are there are a lot of meditative things happening on this record that I think are really really beautiful. And so it's really moving to hear you talk about how how you had such a personal you know, experience an encounter with that sort of transcendence that music really can provide under the right circumstances, you know, and I'm, thank you for sharing that. And thanks for making this record. <laughs> it was, uh, it was literally my pleasure. And, um, and you definitely nailed it as far as a place. Like that was very much in my mind as I was really kind of compiling the record, I'd say, because when I was making the sort of individual pieces of music, I wasn't really thinking about a record per se. It's such a departure from the kind of song forms that I've done in the past that um, yeah, I, I wasn't at the outset seeing this as like my new record and it's a big departure. It was just like, I was wanting to make things that sort of uh, created a world without friction, you know? Yeah. Uh, where you could just sort of float and feel joy the piece of music that inspired me the most through all of it was uh, Rainbow and Curved Air by Terry Riley, mm -hmm. which to me is just like everything all at once and nothing too. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's just my, kind of my favorite. Um, It just, I, it has an aesthetic that only it has, even in his canon, that piece of music. And that, that was really sort of my, um my guiding light making these pieces and then i was also writing songs you know out of habit and it's something i enjoy you know i i care about words 
Yeah. Um, and as I get older, I think, or maybe just right now, I'm using them more and more carefully. Um, so that's part of why there's so little lyrical content on the record. But I also just, um, there's so much constant, it's a different kind of concentration, I suppose, that goes into making a song. And it, I was more interested for a lot of the time that I was working and being creative on just like, trying to sort of open new valves and see what comes through, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The The choice of your collaborators on a lot of the record, uh, Evan uh, Shom, Shomstein, who records as Fote, right? Um, Shornstein, yeah. Shornstein. He's tremendous. Shornstein. And, and, and uh, Cochamia Gastelum, uh, heavy, heavy player. Like, I, I'm a really big... I, I've really loved the records he's done on Daptone, and... There are, I when I read that the three of you started one of these sessions by listening to Rainbow and Curved Air, that Terry Riley record, I thought to myself, that's a really cool thing to have something that was able to kind of point the way. When when did you first hear that Terry Riley record? Do you remember? I heard that a long time ago, and I'm pretty sure my old Apollo Sunshine bandmate, Jesse Gallagher, hipped me to that. Yeah, Um yeah more than 10 maybe closer to 15 years ago uh it's so funny i remember being in a in a uh, i i played in bands you know when i was younger too but not in not to the level that you were playing with even like apollo sunshine you know where you were gigging all the time touring i remember seeing you guys at one point but um but um I remember being in a van uh, with a band I was playing and we had gone to LA to do a show and the main guy in that band putting Rainbow and Curved Air on as we were driving back from LA to Arizona. And I mean, what a, it's just, it's an incredible record. Um, and Terry Riley, you know, like I was into minimalism and I liked, I, I, I gravitated mostly to Steve Reich, you know, especially at that time. Cause I think mm-hmm. I liked the interlocked, you know, there's almost a manic quality to it, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it but it harmonizes just so and that it feels really good. But then hearing that Terry Riley record and sort of recognizing this was at a time where I would have definitely thought of like new age or meditative or contemplative music as a whole other thing than minimalism, you know, which had like a sonic youthy quality or whatever, you know, like, right. So, but hearing rainbow and curved air, I was sort of like, I recognized those qualities as very adventurous qualities for music to maintain, to have, you know, to be a, a whole space to live in the way you're talking about. So even though, I mean, your record doesn't sound like that record, you know, but it's interesting no. to hear the way that guided it. Yeah. 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 And working with those two guys who, um, you know, if I had sort of cast my net across the whole world, I don't think I could have come up with a <laughs> sweeter couple of musicians, more amazing guys to play with. But, um, the fact of it is that they both live 10 minutes away from no kidding <laughs> from me yeah and i uh, i moved upstate um early in the pandemic um with my family and um we we bought some land and built a studio in um a town that i hadn't spent a lot of time in before it's called accord new york and um 
yeah, as it would happen within a pretty short amount of time, Cheme moved right down the street and then Evan too. So um, that was, I think, the very first recording that I did in the studio when we finished building it. They came over around 10 o'clock one night and we just hung out and played till one or two in the morning. There is an 18-minute version of Light Beam on the record. It's split into parts one and two. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to release the 18-minute version um, at some point. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to christen the new place, too. I mean, like, how much more perfect does it get? Totally. I mean, I um, this is something I've always dreamed of, to have my own dedicated recording space on my own property. It's not something that I imagined ever would happen. And then a series of fortunate events allowed it to. Yeah. And I had this sense that like, I really wanted to treat it as a temple and be very, very selective about what kind of motivation for music I allowed to take place in this building. Yeah. Yeah. And and starting with that was sort of a uh, a pronouncement of that. Was that a, you know, when you say something like that, I mean, does that signal a sort of shift for you in certain ways? I mean, I wonder if as a songwriter, and as you mentioned, you are a lyricist and a songwriter, and there are songs on the record. It's not all these soundscape type things that we're describing. Um, the songs work well with that treatment, of course, too. It's like, it, it, it feels... Uh, it feels very whole. It's of a piece, you know? But I mean, did you ever have any doubt where you like, well, maybe I should put the songs on another album and I just have an instrumental album or is it cool for them to flow this? You know, I think about how, I think of that kind of Van Morrison in the 80s stuff, like where, so I, I'm there are examples of people who've done it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you felt that, if you were worried about any tension. I think that was the, the my natural. I didn't feel any tension because I I think one good thing that's come of all this isolation is a sense of like who cares. Yeah, it's, it's true. Um, yeah, but, but I think I think the the natural instinct before I even thought to ask, what if these live together was like this is totally something else. Yeah, you know I've got these few songs I'm working on, but I'll need seven more to make an album. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Um, and I was sort of thinking of Slow Fawn, which is the name of the studio as well, but it was going to be the name of like either a collaborative project or a series of releases, maybe with floating collaborators. Um, but it was going to be a name for this sort of like free um, instrumental work. And then I had just been playing it for different friends who'd come through either working on stuff or just hanging out. Um, and everyone was really excited about both things that I was showing them. And, you know, it happened a few times that I'd show them a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they'd be like, it's not, not working, you yeah. know? Um, but I think the magic moment when I sort of started to see what the record could be as a whole um, was just one night in here by myself, sort of thinking about what I had and and what how people had responded to it. And um, I had made, uh, or there's this moment in light beam where the symbols swell and it sort of goes into a new movement. And that, uh, 
and we ended up chopping out about five minutes of what that goes into and sure. just comes to the end of that later on the record. But to make that chop and drop a song in day in, day out that starts with like, you know, almost a cappella, like big stacks of vocals. Um, it felt just sort of really interesting to me. And my only question was like, is it too jarring? But I didn't, I didn't feel like it was, I felt like it was interesting. And, you know, when I, I'm, I'm, I've always been super interested in like the proportions of instrumental to lyrical, but I think the way I've always approached that is within a song. Mm -hmm. So I've definitely written lots of songs that are mostly instrumental. Um, This just sort of stretched that idea into the whole album, having those kinds of proportions. Yeah. And I felt good about the idea that I could, you know, what's cool about words is that they're very direct. Um, so I could do all this ab- abstract exploration, sort of unencumbered by uh, literalism. Right. But then I also had the benefit of being able to drop in and say something and shift the mood in a way that, you know, as a listener, I always want to get the sense that uh, something will happen if I turn it off that I'll miss. <laughs> You know, yeah, that kind of of, hard terms. Yeah, that kind of creative context, which is like this is a thing you need. Yeah, like it it allows these things individually. And the beauty, like you said, about being able to drop some words in is that you can shape just the perception of what's even come before a little bit. It works backwards and forwards. It's like a really interesting. That's what's great about a record, right? I mean, that's why we are still in 2022 on a podcast talking about a record you made an album you know because i just i i everybody's always talking about how albums are going away but it's like i i still managed to find a lot of them i don't know what you're talking about you know what i mean <laughs> like um and that's just definitely my favorite way to experience music is in this the kind of context you're talking about creating that's something I was thinking about a lot earlier in the process too, when I was sort of exploring the format for how to share this music. Um, at one point I was thinking of a digital only release that was going to be, um, it was going to be dandelion morning resolution and day in day out, but all on one track. Mm. And I was just kind of interested in like, you know, we're we're not limited by like formats really anymore. Like it doesn't have to be a particular length or cut up other than like, if I made an ID every 30 seconds, I guess I'd get more streams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's that. But like, other than that, you know, it, it, it's fun to be able to play with these things, you know, cause it's, it's occurred to me lately that like, I mean, I love vinyl and I love, interacting with it and i love being in a room full of it yeah but at the same time it's it's kind of like making a t-shirt like the album exists either way yeah yeah very much kind of a merch piece i get that for sure for sure and i think that that's the thing that's that's nice is to know that even like to one be able to embrace these new potential formats and to to be able to understand that like the honoring of the sort of old idea like you I I've actually never even thought that an album 
an LP, quote unquote. Like some of my favorite records, I think I think Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys is like twenty eight minutes long or something, or twenty. It's it's like a very short thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and when I think about that album, I don't think, wow, what a short record Pet Sounds <laughs> is, you know, like. Pet Sounds is a very cohesive statement, you know? And so I think that, like, you could make... Yeah, I, lo- I love the idea of that, like, long form just combining songs into shorter statements, you know? The, 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 I would love to see people fracture and splinter into whole new things, too, you know, in terms of ways to present this stuff. So I love that you're... That's sort of where your head's at. I was going to ask... Did, so... I know you've worked a lot with Kevin Morby and you produced his most recent, this is a photograph. Was that done there in, in, in your place or did you go out to him? We did that here. Um, we started the record in this sort of ad hoc space that I was working in up here while this was being built um, with just a five day session of sort of rummaging through all the demos. We tried a, a few things made it from that week. Um, and it was in this little rental house that my family was living in while we were closing on this property. And then we moved into it and I kept recording there and renting um, the rest of the house to the friend's family. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a wild time. Um, but yeah, we did the the bulk of it um, up here in the studio and then sort of put a bow on it in Memphis because just thematically that was a, a fun way to wrap it up. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, when you're talking about the kind of music you want to create create there in the studio, I mean, how does Morby fit into that sort of thing? Are your sessions with him, do they feel, you know, as as dialed in and as sort of in that zone as, as sort of some of what we were just talking about earlier? It's a different kind of energy flowing, mm. you know, for sure. Um, but it's... It's a, what I consider like a very legit energy. You know, I, I really think he's a w- amazing songwriter. And I feel like on his late, this latest record, his powers have been stretched to new heights. I really think like the layers of what he's describing and jumping in and out of like specific things to his family, to social patterns and generational patterns and what we're experiencing emotionally as a country. Yeah. Um, and then wrapping that up in a metaphor with the city of Memphis of like all this promise in the old days and <laughs> like the struggles getting knocked on your face. Like it, the way he paints those pictures, I, I think is really invigorating and to, to sort of help him set the stage for those stories you know it's almost like we're working on like a theater production but it's all music you know yeah that's fascinating i know that for a long time you worked on like a live staging of of the last waltz and i have to imagine that there's a similar sense of that huge stage setting a big stage the idea of a big stage i listen to those the morby record and i feel like He's he's elevated and expanded with just pretty much every subsequent album, like ver- kind of voraciously. I feel like he just keeps like widening what a Kevin Morby record might be, and I feel like it must be exciting for you as a producer who's interested in crafting big stages, wide expanses for these things to live in. It must be pretty invigorating to to be in your space with them. And especially in your own space, your your studio, you know? 
Definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's been an incredible journey with him and I, I'm sure there's, there's more to come, but yeah, to sort of just reflecting on both of our, the growth and our paths, like since we started singing saw was the first one of his we did together. And yeah, I mean, he's made so much incredible music since then. And like, played so many shows and done incredible things, put all these cool bands together. And I've helped with some of that. Um, you know, and me too, going from like sharing this tiny studio with four friends and <laughs> working in another place. Yeah. Um, you know, up at Dan Goodwin's to having my own place now to host a project like that. And, you know, just as, as the scope of the vision grows, like, feels like we're growing with it and it feels really good hey transmissions listeners are you a musical artist or in a band and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world i want to tell you about distro kid DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part. It makes it easy with unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million-plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. Everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world. Head over to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now. Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners. Somebody else you've worked with a ton in the past is Danger Mouse. And I was thinking about how, you know, also a very interesting sound collector, you know, and sort of some of what he's doing with his radio his radio project and some of his 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 both the sort of like presentations of the records in terms of sort of these really cool narrative arcs or conceptual frameworks but also just the way you know there's always a sort of dj sensibility to what he does as well i feel like you can hear that emerging even more with you even earlier when you were talking about cutting from one of your instrumentals into another song that's that kind of collage juxtaposition thing what was what was it how did you first meet danger mouse and and what was working with him on various projects what's that been like um it's been awesome i i was you know familiar with his work um when i released uh, my first solo record called cool it mm-hmm. in 2015 and um you know the record didn't do that much it didn't get a lot of reviews i didn't get asked to play a lot of shows or anything (laughs) Um, (laughs) sure sure but uh but you know one day i just got a random email from danger mouse's assistant who was like 
he wants to meet up and talk about um, like maybe co-producing some stuff. And I was like, what? So I got in touch and I went and we met up. Um, and we had a good talk, though I was super nervous. You know, I was like, oh, I'll do very good in the studio, Danger Mouse, sir. <laughs> you know, that kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, but we started working together and I started to feel more comfortable, you know, around him. And and the more we worked, the more I felt like, you know, he trusted me a lot. And then um, we collaborated on the Man in the High Castle record, the Resistance Radio project, which was all yeah. covers from the late 50s, early 60s, with all these great singers singing. And we did all the uh, backing tracks. And I sang a few at the studio I had um, in Brooklyn at the time. And at that point, you know, it started to really feel like a partnership and we were doing just doing cool stuff together. And I love his taste and I love the way he can um, sort of guide the room with positive reinforcement. You know what I mean? He might do a little, don't do that. But like, it's generally like that right there, that's very cool. And he can just keep things moving and always getting more and more focused um, and without bumming anybody out, just sort of like putting anything that's distracting the sort of aesthetic message or sonic message yeah it's very good at discarding that and watching him shape all that um is really cool because he does work very experimentally in a in a lot of ways like you know let go into the studio with no material you know kind of thing like let's see what happens and um which you two did together some right like you're you're the the follow-up to cool it you didn't really have it that that was sort of encouraged, right? His 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 attempt to like get you to really write in the studio. Definitely, definitely. And that that began, we did a song. So I went out to LA to work on something and uh when he was based out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't remember what it was gonna be because it got canceled. But then I was just out there, you know, so he's like, Oh, well, do you have any new songs? And I didn't. I like just had my first kid. Um, you know, I like was like, I don't even have a song I'm working on. Uh, but I've been messing with this synth guitar sound and I had brought that out. So, you know, he like we like picked a tempo. I just sort of jammed on this harmonized synth guitar thing for a while. He was like, that right there, that right there. We started building out this thing. Um, it's this song Lose Your Illusion, and it starts and ends with this kind of like loopy thing. It's actually Fab Moretti playing the drums and the bass on that loopy bit. Okay. And then, you know, he was trying to get me to sing on that, and I felt a little stilted or whatever. I just, I couldn't find my sort of cadence on that bit. And I was like, I don't know if this were one of my songs, I'd like change chords right here. And he's like, all right, what would you change it to? And just sort of sat there and very quickly wrote the sort of body of, I can't lose. And then uh he had Paul McCartney's old electric harpsichord. <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> cool to pretty, be there. Pretty cool thing to have around, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember the engineer Kenny Takahashi was like, was like, oh, it, it's all messed up. I was like, oh, too bad. I'm definitely playing that. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna play Paul McCartney's we'll, broken we'll figure anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it has that on there. And you know, so a lot of stuff stayed from the first day of recording even though I ended up that one, it took me over a year to write the words. Mm. 
And when I settled on the final words, I felt like some of the chords needed to change. Um, so I would just like grab if if the all the chords I needed were in what we had recorded in LA. Yeah. So I'd like grab a bar, pull it out, like I just edited it like crazy. Um, which is very much Brian's vibe to work that way. Yeah. Did and that did that feel exciting to you to do it that way, to just really be Totally. To combine like live playing and stacking things and it has the like organic textures and the air around the instruments and the, you know, the drifting of rhythms, you know, not every hits exactly placed like, right. You know, when it's positioned to the beat. Um, and But then to treat that as if it were, you know, in Ableton, like that's what's happening in these four bars and then it's going to do this. And like, you know what I mean? So that was really cool and liberating to see that we could do both and you know watching how he and kenny worked together actually um inspired me to kind of get some of my pro tools editing chops together so that i could do that because you know it, i feel like at that point it was like oh if i edit a whole song it always ends up like getting off the tempo yeah sure you know i gotta i gotta figure this stuff out so i did and now i work that way a lot and i think it's opened a lot of a lot of doors that like that was I guess that's kind of the main thing I learned from Brian is that like the song might not be written till it's out. Like, yeah, <laughs> if he has an idea for like something after it's been mixed or whatever, he'll just be like, oh, well, guess we got to unmix it because <laughs> let's let's try that thing. You know, it's never too late with him to make a pretty dramatic change. I that's I love that. I love that so much. I I, I know he's worked a lot with you know david lynch over the years and lynch seems to be another one of those people who will tinker with a thing sometimes very late additions completely flip the whole narrative or change things you know and that's you know mm -hmm. i love that idea of being able to exist in that zone where you're open to that sort of thing you know what i mean because yeah you know that's that's fantastic well that's awesome that he was such a such a and it, it, that your time with him has resulted in this just expanded way of you thinking about music. You've worked with a lot of people. I mentioned earlier the 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 last waltz stuff where so that was like you did that for a while, right? Like how long did were you involved in as the musical director? Um every time that it's happened, I yeah. was there. I mean, as it progressed it it kind of directed itself, you know, it, it took more wrangling the first couple of years. Sure. Um, but the band was insane. So, it, you know, I can't really take credit for like cracking the whip and making that thing fly or anything. But um, it's basically my friend, Ramey Egan, thought it would be a lot of fun for people to see, you know, a, a cool band and cool singers perform that right around Thanksgiving time. Yeah. Um. And he was right. And it was uh, it was a ton of work at the beginning, but it was super, super fun. And sort of back to the first thing we were talking about, about the power of music, you know, when you get rid of all the marketing and the hoopla and the yeah. things that make us sad and the metrics, you know, unless you're one of the lucky ones who gets excited when they see their <laughs> metrics. But, uh, you know, like, just the the core, the essence of it, the pure stuff. Um, when we performed that the first time, like 
just seeing how happy the audience was and feeling our own exhilaration and camaraderie just threw all my misgivings about it up to that point out the window. Like, obviously, I had a little internal chatter of like, oh, tribute concert. Sure. I don't know, you know, like that kind of stuff. But it was just so fun and continued to be super fun. I think we'll probably do it again soon. I dig that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I know that it was uh, um, Jeff Chimenti. He he played on piano, right? I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Was did did you end up working on the Bob Weir record through him, or or how did that how did that come together? And what was that experience like? I ended up working on Bob's record through Josh Kaufman. Oh, right. Who also a, does stuff with the right? Who who does considerably more? He was producing that Bob record, but the way we both sort of wound up in in the Grateful Dead world was that in. I think it was 2012. I think it was 2012. Might have even been 2011. But we, um, Josh works a lot with The National. He goes way back with those guys. And The National and Bob Weir had been talking about collaborating in some way um, in affiliation um, with Headcount, like vote voting, organize, getting people to vote. So they put this thing together, the bridge sessions, and Aaron Dessner asked Josh to kind of MD the project because he was kind of away for most of the rehearsals, producing something and had to drop in like when we were actually in San Francisco at Bob Weir's place. So um, at that time, Josh and I were sharing a studio and like, you know, the Devendorfs from the National and um, Conrad Doucette and Walt Martin was playing some some keys and uh josh and i were playing guitars um i think that was it for the rehearsing and then uh yeah we just learned all these dead tunes had a lot of fun (laughs) got up to san francisco and the band was augmented further with aaron desner and um thomas bartlett on piano and we did like a three-hour concert with bob weir playing Grateful Dead music. It was amazing. Yeah. And at um, at that time, Josh and I, y- Yellowbirds was my band, and Josh was in that band with me. And um, and then after that, there was this uh, event at TRI, Bob Weir's studio there in Marin. And uh, they were having a 70th anniversary or Jerry Garcia's 70th birthday kind of event. And they invited Yellowbirds to come be a guest. So we were obviously super pumped. And um, we uh, worked out all the solos in Terrapin Station and Harmony and like got our got our thing real tight. Wow. Yeah. Terrapin about it. That that's a considerable effort, I think. Yeah, it, it was really fun to get get under the hood on on that stuff and then we got out there and Cass McCombs was a gift so that was the first time we met him I've worked with him in a bunch of ways since then um and uh Jonathan Wilson was out there playing a bunch of guitar and singing Bill Lesh was playing bass Mike Morgan was playing bass um all sorts of amazing people were there um 
So anyway, and then at that point, we were kind of in dead world. And I think at some point over that weekend, Josh and Bob started chatting and he ended up producing um, Blue Mountain. Yeah. Bob's yeah. Uh, solo record, latest solo record. Um, so Josh brought me in to play a bit of guitar and pedal steel on that one. And um, yeah, what that's sort of my ticket into Deadland. That's amazing. So amazing. Yeah, what's... What's weird like in person? Because the vibe I get from Instagram is that he's extremely fit. <laughs> oh, he's so buff. <laughs> we just, uh... <laughs> he's constantly like uh, uh, throwing huge ropes or big tires or some I shit. Know. I'm like, I look know. at this guy. Like, he, and he's, yeah, he's not young and he's it's all it's always the workout version of some uh you know mundane daily object like yeah. the the rubbery version of an eight pound mallet <laughs> like, <laughs> specifically for working out yeah um yeah man I, he's he's keeping it together um I, I mean in person he's like he's got that voice i don't know i didn't get as close to him as josh has he's like really like sure you know, sort of roomated with him a bit. But, um, you know, for me, it's more like getting the classic stories and kind of like, I never kind of got over just being like, that's fucking Bob Weir. Yeah. You know. Were were <laughs> you, have you been a, a kind of a dead guy or an appreciator of the dead for, for a while? Yes, but not like the way every, well, just in my own way. I. Um, it's funny uh, how often I ask that question <laughs> And how often the response comes back something like that. I, I, I've given that response myself because, like, when you're talking about deadheads, like, you can really like the dead and still feel very much like you have not reached the, you know, the mantle of calling yourself a deadhead, you know. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, I was a kid learning to play music in the 90s. So, like, at the beginning, they were still on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, seeing the dead live like didn't interest me, right? Even though I loved the early records because I was super into psych rock and '60s stuff, and you know, Anthem of the Sun was my favorite dead record at that point. You know, I got that tape at a pawn shop that always seemed to have good tapes, and I'd ride my bike and bring them home. And I remember like Alligator blew my mind. It was like. Is that a guitar or a kazoo yeah. or a guitar and a kazoo? <laughs> What's making that fuzz? That's sick. You know, <laughs> just, just Big like, time. yeah, yeah, that stuff appealed to me a lot. And then the sort of like, I don't know, I, I now I can appreciate, you know, their later 70s and 80s stuff. You know, my taste has broadened a lot. Sure. Um, but at that time, like, it, I needed it to be like 60s and psychedelic to be interested in it. Totally, totally. But as time has gone on, you've just you've expanded it out. And yeah, that's that's totally. fantastic. Yeah, because now I see like a lot of my musical choices at 40 would not have been, uh, do you, you know, approved by 15 year old me. Do, but, you, do you think 15 year old you would be into this new into into slow fawn? I hope so. <laughs> yeah were you were you into stuff like spiritual jazz and that kind of like co i feel like you sometimes hear people people call it cosmic jazz or or spiritual jazz uh obviously we're talking 
Pharaoh Saunders, Alice Coltrane. Um, yeah, Don Cherry. Don Cherry. Yeah. When 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 did that? When did you find yourself sort of coming into that world? That stuff I got into later because for I was on an odd path in my teen years where I just kept working further and further back in time, <laughs> and like c- completely lost interest in what was happening contemporarily like pretty early on, like got a guitar in 92. So I was like, learn some Nirvana songs. Really want to learn that Guns N' Roses solo, but it's too hard (laughs) right now, maybe in a couple of years. Sure. But then in a couple of years, I wasn't listening to Guns N' Roses anymore. Like that stuff sort of hipped me to like Woodstock era, you know, and then that hipped me deeper into like psych rock and 13th floor elevators, you know, Texas stuff. I grew up in Houston. Um, but then that took me further back and I got into like rockabilly and Western swing. And then I was like, well, these Western swing guys play way better than these rockabilly guys. What's the deal with that? Oh, they're into bebop. What's, what's that? And I started, you know, I I never fully like became like a jazz scholar or anything. But back then I was listening to like, you know, 40s and 50s jazz, like Count Basie Orchestra and Oscar Pettiford Records and sure. things like that. Which is all killer shit, too, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you fa- yeah. eventually, you know, you get familiar enough with that stuff and you start exploring beyond jazz, that that mm-hmm. initial stuff. Yeah. Mingasa Um was one of the records mm-hmm. that came into my life at that time. Yeah. And it was my favorite. And it's still, I think, one of the most singable jazz records of that era. Just like, yeah. I don't know. So his music just sticks with me. And then that led to like Black Saint and the Center Lady and this more like melting abstract kind of stuff. And then it's not a far leap from there to Pharaoh Sanders or Don Cherry or Terry Riley. That's right. That's right. That's actually great. I love that that uh, that like uh, kind of through line exists. That that you know when you think of Terry Riley, he very much so much of that stuff does feel akin to. Well, there's a there's a de- devotional religious aspect to it, the same way there is for a Pharaoh Saunders or Alice Coltrane or these sort of more. This, when people use the term spiritual jazz, yeah, that's it's it's so it's so overused now. You forget. No, it's like actual spiritual practice. This is these people are. You know what I mean? Like every everybody and their mom is into spiritual jazz now. But then when you realize how heavy it is for for those people who actually made it, um, that's awesome. And I love that you mentioned growing up in Texas and that you you know. Because if ever a state has a psychedelic rock heritage, it's Texas, right? I mean, 13th Floor Elevators, one of my all-time great experiences was getting to see Rocky Erickson in Marfa before he passed away. Oh, wow. It wasn't the greatest show I've ever seen, if I'm being 100% honest. But also, when you build a band up like that in your head and they become a mythology, you know, no person can ever live up to that. But I mean... Growing up in Texas, were they one of the sort of shadows that, you know, hung over everything? I mean, not for most kids my age. Sure. You know what I mean? That was sort of like how I identified myself as unique was by being into that and like knowing the weird, you know, back then there were still cool guitar stores full of vintage like junk in quotes. You know, it wasn't like super expensive. (laughs) Yeah. 
So like I, you know, I worked jobs after school and on the weekends and I could go buy like a weird wah-wah pedal that had like a ocean waves sound and a siren built into it, you know, like <laughs> yeah, heck yeah. fun stuff like that. Uh, you know, and those places sometimes had records too. Yeah. And you kind of get turned on to the, to the psychedelic heritage of, of the, of the, of the place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that the Western states, like I said, I'm in Arizona, so we've got, we can claim like the Meat Puppets, we can claim Dwayne Eddy, we can claim, there's a lot of like, but I think that the Western states, we produced a particular fried kind of thing, I think, and when I think of Texas, I think of that, you know, psychedelic stuff. I I mean, from from the 13 floor elevators on, you know, I, I really like the moving sidewalks too. that pre ZZ top stuff. I mean, all this, I like just ZZ top obviously. So Texas, you, you're not, like, you're, you're not all the I, way there on ZZ top. I'm not all the way there by a long shot. I mean, there's things about it. Like they've got that seventies, like meaty rhythm section thing that I dig. Yeah. Some of the guitar stuff's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, but the songs are just stupid. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think I could ever argue with you, though. <laughs> like I, the uh, the stupidity. Yeah, the stupidity is a quality I think I admire in 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 ZZ Top. <laughs> but um, but no, that's that's cool. As a kid, what what I'm just curious, what were your peers listening to? Do you remember what was what was big? Um, you know, they liked the stuff that was popular at the time you know it's like Beck and yeah. um I guess my friends probably kept listening to Nirvana when they were doing In Utero by then I was like in the 50s you were you were you all know? the way back to <laughs> I was just I was just <laughs> lost in like dorky kid music land um I love that you know, which it, it was cool and it also had it's like weird I don't know, weird, strange things that came with it. Like, uh, I don't know. I, th I think into my 20s, I had this sense that keeping it real was like <laughs> living by this, what would they do before 1970 sort of ethos. I guess I th had, a, a, had a mythologized sense that they were making music for purer reasons sure. because I identified more with the mainstream music of those days that maybe like they were elevating a purer message or more skilled musicians or something like that. Yeah. 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 No, that's a, that's a thing that's easy to, to, to convince yourself of. And it's also an easy enough thing that like, eventually you probably start to realize like that <laughs> the levels of purity are not uniform across any, any, uh, any time or era, you know, and that, yeah, and that people are people in all eras too. So they're sometimes some of those rockabilly guys were literally just doing that to pay the bills. You know, it's like you never know. <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean, I don't see that as a pure art form anymore <laughs> at all. Yeah, um, yeah. And once that once that idea sort of shatters, it's it's liberating, big time. Um, yeah. yeah, you're open to a million other things. Well, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this like about this this record and about what these last couple of years have been like for you and sort of your your career in in 
in its whole. I, I'm, we left a lot off the table, of course, but I really appreciate how much ground we were able to cover and that you were able to spend the time with me tonight. Man, such a pleasure. Once again, thanks for having me. I love this show. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your listen. You can support this podcast by checking out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. Your support helps us to keep creating the show. We'd also love it if you left a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps new folks discover the show. Click the subscribe button wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. We are a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, and the show's executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week with another all-new episode featuring Matt and Bubba Cadane of Bedhead and the New Year. Stay tuned for that. This transmission is concluded.